One sort of pictorial way to say it is you have to prepare on your knees. And uh, so I think preaching it to yourself means that you come to the text of Scripture, not as a textbook where you're developing your next um, lecture, but you come to it as the Word of your God. Ministers forget how powerful the Word of God is in that they don't recognize when they're preaching that the Lord is doing a number of things in the hearts of individuals. The power of God is there in the preaching. In the use of biblical language, God is concerned about hard hearts versus soft hearts. Mm -hmm. And so to see that the, the, the work of the Spirit among God's people historically has always been in a responsiveness to His Word. You have to be besotted with Christ. It's not, okay, here's a hermeneutical theological principle. Here's the person revealed to us in the Scriptures. I believe Him. I follow Him. I love Him. And I want you to know Him. I think that's at the heart of Christ in the preaching. Welcome to The Pastor and the Modern World a podcast from Westminster Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Peter Lilback, president here at Westminster. Over the next few episodes, we'll be exploring together a new book from Westminster Seminary Press called The Pastor and the Modern World. In this short book, three accomplished scholars, William Edgar, R. Kent Hughes, and Alfred Poirier, have each contributed a chapter exploring the challenges of today and answers from the past, all with the intent of helping the church minister for Christ today's culture. Join me as we talk about the pastor and the modern world. Well, I really enjoy taking time to discuss uh, some of the great things that come out of Westminster Seminary Press and this work, The Pastor in the Modern World, has been a real blessing to me as I've had time to study it. And I'd like us to take a look at the uh, second lecture that comes out of the Boyer Lectures, and that's uh, given by our second occupant of the Boyer Chair, which is Dr. Kent Hughes. And so, Scott, uh, as an expert in apologetics with the name of Oliphant that's now world <laughs> famous, I know it's spoken all over the world as the apologist at Westminster. <clears throat> Todd Rester, church history and the making. You're making church history by uh, doing new projects like the Turretin Project. We can't wait to hear more about that in the, in the future. And of course, as we talk about Kent Hughes, the, he's a personal friend of yours, John Curry, is the chair of our pastoral theology department. And so uh, why don't we start uh, our conversation with you just reminding us who this extraordinary man is, yeah. Kent Hughes. He is really... I know it's the wrong analogy, but he's a rock star for pastoral theology. He really is yeah. in a class of his own. Yes. And you had the privilege to work with him. So yeah. tell us about who he is in his life. Well, it was a great privilege to be able to partner with Kent in person for about a year uh, as he completed his uh, service here uh, as a visiting professor of practical theology. But of course, Kent Hughes, as you put it, has uh, such a large profile uh, for the Reformed and Evangelical Church. Uh, 41 years in pastoral ministry, 27 of those as the senior pastor at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, um, where his commitment to relentless exposition uh, caused that church to grow. Uh, it mobilized it for mission. And I think one of the most significant things that will be part of Kent's legacy is the number of pastors and particularly expositors that were drawn to his ministry and multiplied through his ministry. 
And when you think of 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 2, and what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men mm. who will be able to teach others also, you got to think Kent Hughes. Mm. Um, Kent's uh, commitment to expository preaching, uh, his discipline in that, his heart in that, which we're going to talk about in the chapter in the book. Uh, there, there's just probably innumerable men who are now committed to biblical exposition in our pastors because of Kent Hughes' ministry, not least here at Westminster Seminary. And um, one of the things I like to uh, attribute to Kent is what's going on in our pastoral theology department today really was built uh, in many ways, uh, of course, on the shoulders of Dr. Timothy Whitmer, who was here for many years, but then also Kent Hughes. And Kent really, uh, with his godly gravitas, uh, gave us a tone uh, and a vision for pastoral theology that uh, I think has moved us forward. And it's just been a privilege to kind of follow in his train. You, I think you mentioned in the foreword to this article that one of his books really shaped your ministry. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, uh, over 25 years ago, as a young pastor, uh, I was trying to read and learn everything I could, and I came across Disciplines of a Godly Man. And uh, the book itself was of great value, just trying to learn how to be a godly man uh, to my family, to be a, a godly man in my walk, and, and to be a godly pastor. And then at the end of the book... Uh, it had these, uh, this list of uh, reading lists, this appendix of reading lists, where Kent had gone to all of these uh, leaders in the evangelical, and I actually didn't know at that time, the reform movement, and asked them to uh, list the top books that had really influenced them in their ministry. And I read that as a, and wanting to read everything I could. And look, what I chose to do was isolate the ones that rose to the top for everybody. And right at the top of the list, I think almost number one, uh, over the whole list was John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Amazing. And so uh, I picked up Calvin's Institutes and began to read it. And uh, was So reading. you're saying Calvin as a pastor is relevant for the modern world? Oh, I think uh, uh, deeply relevant for the modern world. And so I think I almost, uh, Kent not only influenced my pastoral theology, but had a deep influence on my theology uh, because of that book and because of the reading list at the end of the book. That's marvelous. All right, well, as we get started, I, I was taken as I looked at his uh, particular contribution called the heart of the pastor and the pulpit. Yeah. And so, Scott, he uses this phrase, and I thought it would be interesting from a theological perspective if you'd unpack it. He said, I regularly intone in my classes that the Word of God is wholly inerrant, totally sufficient, and massively potent. He said that's a regular... Uh, statement that he makes in his class. What is he saying theologically in that, and why is it so important, you think, for preaching from a theological perspective? Yeah, such a great statement, and, and one that um, the church ought to hold on to. I think when you look at the history of the church, one of the first things that happens is uh, people begin to doubt, question the Word of God as the Word of God. And um, you know, Warfield has this statement that we're, we're meant to um, trust the Lord and trust His Word, even if it means in spite of appearances sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nice way to think about it. I think what, what Kent is helping us see is that what, we, what the Lord has given to the church is His very Word. Uh, Jesus said He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He saw the Word that way. We're meant to see the Word that way. But it's also, uh, contrary to some opinions, it's not a dead letter. It's, it's living and it's active because it's the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Word. When the Word goes out, <clears throat> I remember when Dr. Ferguson was here a couple of years ago talking about preaching. He said something like, um, ministers forget how powerful the Word of God is 
in that they don't recognize when they're preaching that the Lord is doing a number of things in the hearts of individuals. The power of God is there in the preaching. And, and you know, I, when I was in pastoral ministry, um, you know, I had some people who would snooze through sermons um, and others who would sit like this. Yeah, what, what is that saying? A nodding audience doesn't always mean agreement. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this woman could actually sleep with her eyes open, um, but but I could catch her because she wouldn't blink. So there was a, there was a way there was a way to know um, when when she had nodded off. Um, she had a lot of children, so it's, you know it's understandable. But the the point is, I think Kent is making is um, don't neglect to recognize the power of the word in preaching. Um, it's, it's Christ we proclaim, and Christ is given to the church as the life-giving spirit, to use um, Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, and that's the spirit of God uh, moving as he does sovereignly and infinitely, but in the hearts of people, in that place where God has said, I will be there when you gather. And, and I think uh, to, to remind people of the power of the Word of God is to exegete the blank faces during during preaching. Um, don't think because what you see doesn't look like it's powerful yeah. that there's not an infinite power mm. that's actually going out from the pulpit mm. at the moment that you're preaching. I, I think Kent was very helpful, and he would he would say this in, in different ways, but I think it's very helpful. Reminding us as faculty, reminding students, this is what's happening when you ascend the pulpit. Power okay. of God is there. So also, <laughs> as we look at the beginning here, uh, Todd, he says he's constantly amazed that in his 50 years of Lectio Continua preaching, mm -hmm. what in the world is Lectio Continua? You're our Latinist, so to unpack that, where does it fit in church history? It literally means a continuous reading. Um, so what you're talking about is, the way in which the text is handled and the way that you preach through things. What is at stake here in the 16th and 17th century in Lectio Continua, in part, is shall the church be on a schedule of sermons where you can go through, you could, you could go through this cycle of sermons over three to five years, and there's certain books you would never read. Um, and so the, the part of this question of Lectio Continua is that you're going to take verse by verse and exegete uh, as you go. And that was part of the that was part of the commitment among the Reformed mm. um, throughout the 16th and 17th centuries as this awareness grew and how do you do this? Mm. Um, it, and it, it it does a couple of things. It makes the pastor a servant of the word rather than um, a servant of the news. Um, so that your sermons are driven by the the driven by the word and the the direction. And there's no escape. <laughs> there's no there's no escape from what the Lord is doing in His people in the Word and what He's doing with His people in front of you. Um, so it's a wonderful it's a wonderful point to to bring out. Okay, so um, John, if you go along and you look now, as he's thinking through uh, his preaching, <clears throat> he says, "But preaching is also personality. Mm -hmm. It's he uses the Phillips Brooks phrase, truth through personality." So. What does he mean by that? And it kind of is almost in tension with the primacy of the word. How's the personality shape all of this? So tell us a little bit as you think yeah. about that as a preacher. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Kent goes on uh, to the end, at the end of the article to mention it's not a particular kind of personality that the Lord uses. And he actually uses some illustrations of very effective, popular preachers that he sees young men try to imitate and really discourages that. 
Um, and so what I think he's saying is right, is that uh, we're not just a talking head. Uh, the word uh, in the scriptures comes through in preaching a person who's preaching. And the point is that that person needs to be engaged with the word and the God of the word that he's proclaiming. And so I, I do think preaching comes through personality, but Kent wouldn't say, and we certainly wouldn't say, it's through a particular kind of personality. The Lord gives preachers different <clears throat> gifts. He gives preachers, uh, nurtures them in different personalities. And so I think that the critical thing is that you as a person are engaged both in the study of the word, that's the whole thing, the pastor in his heart, and Kent makes it real clear in the article, that you, the person is engaged in communion with God in the study of the word, and the person is engaged in the delivery of the word, however the Lord has put you together. Uh, maybe the other way to put it is, it's not a detached, a theoretical, merely academic uh, data download when you're preaching. Even if it's exposition, sometimes people fall into that with exposition. My job is to give the people the data of the text. Well, your job is to give them the data of the text as it conveys the message of the text through the man that God has sent. So I think that's what he's getting at when he talks about it being uh, through personality. Um, not a particular personality, not a particular style, but that the person is engaged with God and with the people as he is proclaiming the word of God in that situation. So one of the things that I take from uh, Kent's work is that the preacher needs to be preaching this text to himself yeah. while he's preparing. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, it's a, I think it's a critical question. Um, it's often the difference, I think, between uh, power in the pulpit and uh, long-term fidelity and effectiveness in pastoral ministry. One sort of pictorial way to say it is you have to prepare on your knees. And uh, so I think preaching it to yourself means that you come to the text of Scripture, not as a textbook where you're developing your next um, lecture, but you come to it as the word of your God. And you're always, as we talked about, you're always under the word, not over the word. So the preacher himself is a, one way to, that we put it is, he's a son before he's a steward. He's a Christian. And so we come as one in Christ and um, communing with Christ through the word that Christ has given to us. And central to that is, uh, is dependence uh, by the power of the Spirit through prayer. Uh, so I think you, you preach it to yourself by coming to it as the word of your God. And then, you know, Kent illustrates in the, the article that one of the things he used to do uh, on the Lord's Day was he'd go to the study uh, two or three hours before the service and pray through uh, his sermon and ask himself, do I believe this? I believe this. And to preach it as though I believe this. And that's where the conviction comes from. So I think the key is that you're coming to it as the word of your God to you, and you're delivering the word of God to the people uh, and preach it to yourself that way. That's good. So he mentions the fact that it took him 20 hours mm -hmm. regularly of prayerful yeah. engagement with the text before he felt he could preach. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of pastors say, I wish I could do that, yeah. but you know, I'm bivocational. Mm. I got a big family. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm running from pillar to post just to keep my life going. I want to prepare. I can't do that. Should he not preach? What, what yeah. do you say to a young guy like that? Yeah, well, we talk about this some in our classes. Um, and you do have situations where uh, circumstances beyond your control, like perhaps having to be bivocational, um, you, the demands of the schedule are just intense. Uh, 
But then there's also situations where the demands of the schedule are intense because you've chosen it to be intense. And if you really believe that the exposition and proclamation of the Word of God is the pastor's primary stewardship, you'll manage your time so that other priorities are reduced. Uh, so when it's within your power, uh, I, I think this is a, a one of the areas in which Ephesians chapter 4 and the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry really comes in. For the pastor to know what his ministry is as he equips the saints for their ministry. So some of it becomes uh, a being a disciplined steward of your priorities. And for some, uh, that might mean actually having to curtail other things that uh, other people have the privilege of participating in so that you can find the time for your preparation. So I, honestly, Peter, I think oftentimes it's a matter of choices and decisions um, to say, you know, I love the way Kent puts it. These are sacred hours. They're not just study hours. They're sacred hours. And if you see them as sacred hours, you'll fight for the time you need to prepare. Um, so I wouldn't say if you can't get that, you shouldn't preach. But I, should say, I would say you should fight for all the time you need um, to be able to prepare properly for the pulpit. But in the end, uh, you always go to your sermon uh, with what you can study dependent on the Lord to do the work. That's great. As we read uh, this work by uh, Dr. Hughes, Todd, he looks to... Uh, one of the great theologians of America in the early uh, first Great Awakening, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and talks about affections and the importance of the heart. Uh, does he use uh, Edwards in a proper way, do you think, as a historical figure? Would you agree with it? Would you think he's, uh, is it maybe you could use a better figure or is he the right one? Because well, we're all not leading a Great Awakening, right? And <laughs> as I understand it, he was... Uh, he read his sermons with a candle and probably was not the most dynamic personality. So what's going on there? Well, the, I think there's a what Edwards is, <clears throat> is tapping into is a much longer and larger conversation about the, the, the necessity of the full engagement of the whole person with God. Mm -hmm. um, and so in as far as, insofar as he's trying to tap into that, I think you're in a, a, a tremendous stream. Um, also in the article... Um, Dr. Hughes uh, mentions um, William Ames as well, and one of the one of the comments I love from William Ames about uh, the ministry of the Word in argument with Bellarmine, who was a Jesuit, arguing for the Council of Trent and the primacy of the magisterium. Uh, Ames has this one-liner he comes back with. He says, we don't have a magisterium of the word. We have a ministerium. We're not masters of the word. Yeah. We are servants of yeah. it. So that the, the, the play between magister and minister. Mm -hmm. And so the, the thing that I was so, was so helpful here in his use of Edwards and others is that the, the, the idea to a pastor that what's necessary is that the whole person encounter the word of God and that um, you know, yes, we come to yes, we come through our studies to study the word, but it is so vital in the life of a pastor, in the life of a congregation, that the word studies us, mm. and mm. and and that uh, that God through His word studies us. That's good. And so the full the full engagement of the of, of the human being in in the way that they think, in the way that they feel, in the way that they respond, all of these things are subject to the work of God. Okay. So that I think is a there's a there's a tremendous amount of riches here. I think just uh, in Edward's context too, with the with the Great Awakening, he's he's trying to oppose the the enthusiasm, so called, mm -hmm. of the revivalists who were who were exalting mm -hmm. the affections above everything else, mm -hmm. 
And I think what Edward was trying to do, I'm willing to be corrected here, yeah, sure. but I think part of what he's trying to do is give a biblical grounding and um, objectivity, mm. primarily by way of 1 Corinthians 13, to how we think about it. So mm. the, the reaction might have been during the Great Awakening, affections are always, or don't even think about affections because the enthusiasts are doing that and they're going right. wrong. But instead it was, there's got to be a biblical way to frame right. this out. So you can agree, disagree with the way Edwards did it, but what he was after was, we can't be doing what the enthusiasts are doing. We've got to have a biblical view of what, even as Todd says, okay. exactly right. The right. whole person. Has so to in that context, he he calls attention to the Hebrew word for heart, which is lave, and he says, mm -hmm. it is the fullness of the inner connectivity of man. Mm -hmm. It's it's the emotion. It's the will. It's the mind. It's the decision making that we cannot divide people up. Would you agree with that? That's a fair assessment. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think part of what you saw with people who wanted to support uh, some aspects of the Great Awakening is you saw faculty psychology. And, and I think what Todd is saying is what Edwards is saying is what I think the best of the reformers said is that we are meant to be whole people with different aspects. So we don't just isolate individual faculties and say this one is better than that one, you know, Van Til's thing on the primacy intellect. It's the whole person yeah. engaged and involved here. We need to think about it that way. And that includes affections. And maybe, maybe, sometimes in the reform context, we're not as good about thinking biblically about the affections, and we're much better about the, the head. So, John, how do you take care of a heart as a pastor, your own heart, first of all, and then preach to the hearts of the people that you're speaking to? Yeah, I think one of the things that we have to be aware of uh, in public ministry is the ability to divorce the public from the private. And uh, it's very subtle and um, it's very easy to do, particularly with the pressures and the wounds and uh, that can come with pastoral ministry. So I think one of the first things is to make a commitment and to be in uh, enough community that you're not able to disintegrate uh, who you are in the pulpit, where you are in public ministry from the private ministry that uh, one of my heroes, and I think one of yours, President Ronald Reagan. Uh, there's a book where he uh, talks about his communication style. Was he a preacher? He was a great communicator. And I think, <laughs> I think preachers can learn a lot from his communication. Okay. And one of the things they can learn in this particular uh, theory is the reason that he was such a great communicator was the person you saw behind the podium was the person he was in private. And he really believed that uh, the best thing he could get do was be honest and authentic with the American people. I made him a very effective communicator. Whatever one thinks of his presidency, he was an effective communicator. So I think taking care of the heart of the pastor is that commitment to say, I will not divorce who I am privately, who I am before God, who I am before my family, who I am with the community of believers who are closest to me. I will not divorce that from who I am publicly. And then I think the other thing is to come back to, uh, I love the way Todd put it, that the word is studying us while we're studying the word. Um, is to come back to that, that we are under the Word of God. The Word of God is not a tool. It's not a textbook. It's the Word of my God to me. And so the, I'm, I'm, I want the Word to be pointed to my, through my head to my heart as I'm studying to actually take it and teach it to people. Um, I, I think I'll come back again to the, the discipline of prayer. I think it's so easy for us as pastors um, to think that we're, we've got work to do and praying isn't work. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 6, where the apostles set out their priorities in the midst of an organizational conflict that became a relational conflict, um, you know, I preached that text and I would preach, uh, we will devote ourselves to the word and prayer. And our, our dear professor, 
came to me after and said, uh, prayer and the word. That's Dr. Gaffin. Dr. Gaffin. <laughs> and the, the order is prayer and the word. And one of the things I think can happen to pastors is we don't think prayer is, prayer is work. Prayer is part of our work. It's of the first order priority. So I think one of the ways we tend our heart is to actually, you asked about the time for sermon prep, is to carve out the time for prayer and to make that part of our work. And it says we commune with God in prayer that the Holy Spirit extends his rule in our hearts. So I, I, again, we're maybe just come back to, I think, pastors making earnest, faith-filled use of the means of grace in their own life uh, and keeping that public and private integrated. Yeah. I want all of you to address this uh, in your own way. Todd, how has the church misunderstood the work of the Holy Spirit in preaching as you look back through history? Oh, wow. Uh, what a wonderful question. Um, to put it in terms of this article and the way that the, uh, he's using Jonathan Edwards, the, the, the crisis of authority in the church is about how does the word function. When you're dealing with some of the Quakers and some of the other enthusiasts of this period in the 18th century and Edwards' day, you're dealing with people who are looking for an inner light separable from the Word and even over the Word, apart from the Word, independent of the Word. And so that crisis in the 18th century in preaching was, is what, it, what role does the inner light have? What is that nature of the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit? Where it intersects with affections is are the affections um, precursors to regeneration or are the affections effects of regeneration? And that's part of that conversation about what is justifying faith, what is saving faith, what is what do we, how do we understand sanctification, all these different things. And so understanding properly in, in um, preaching the role of the affections and the role of, um, the role of engagement in the Word and under the Word in preaching is, is a tremendous topic that needs to be explored further. Um, the, the thing that struck me in, in this point about the necessity of, of engagement um, it, it, of the pastor here and is, is that bringing of, of that mind, will, and emotion um, into subjection under it. Uh, and so that at, when you encounter people in the pulpit um, and, and in the congregation, you have to bring to bear that aspect of, of the, the work of the Spirit um, through the Word. Um, as far as the history of the church on preaching here, I mean, yes, this issue of um, this issue of how should you preach to the congregation, there are so many manuals of preaching that you can find throughout the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. One of the people that I work with, Petrus von Maastricht, remarked that sometimes in eloquence of dealing with preaching manuals, people write works that are longer than systematics uh, in order to tell you how to preach. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why he, he, he gets real concise in how to preach. Um, and in that whole theme of bringing things over from um, the preaching of the Word to nourish the flock and to encourage them in their faith, and to grow them in their faith, uh, it sticks with me, the comment that Maastricht made, to, that he says, you know, you can preach a fine sermon but if you never actually get around through the preaching to apply it persistently to the congregation for, for them to come and close with God, you're stultifying your hearers. Um, we don't just need fine sermons and fine exegesis. We've got a precedent to every aspect of, of, of the human life. Okay, let me pick it up and come back to a comment that you made earlier, Scott, and that is we need the Holy Spirit in our preaching, and, and that's the linkage. 
take it from a personal side. You're trained as a theologian. You have been a pastor. <clears throat> now you're a professor, but you're often listening to preaching because you're part of a congregation. How do you, as a theologian, sense the Holy Spirit present in preaching? Now you're you're on the receiving side, mm -hmm. and you are theologically attuned to all of the great uh, apologetical principles, systematic principles. You've exegeted Scripture. Do you ever say, the Holy Spirit's at work today? And if so, how do you know that? So how, how do you unpack that on a personal way? Because now you're helping pastors to understand from a theologian's sense, I know God's here today. Yeah. Well, there, there are probably different ways to answer that question. But um, one of the things that comes to mind to me in this is, um, you know, when when Jesus was about to leave his disciples and he, and he, and he had them sequestered in the upper room, <clears throat> he wanted them to know about the Trinity. So, so Jesus is thinking, I'm about to leave. What is the one thing I need to leave them with? It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and one of the things that he says uh, remarkably, I think, is when he's talking to his disciples about the Spirit, he will glorify me. And, and I think, you know, as you, as you think about the mystery of the Trinity and the way that is worked out, as we say, in the economy of the history of redemption, um, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing to see the interactions between the three. When Christ is, is walking the earth, what's he constantly doing? He's saying, I'm saying what my Father says. I'm doing the works my Father is doing, which is just a fascinating way. I'm saying it. And then when he's telling his disciples the Spirit's going to come, what is the Spirit's ministry? J.I. Packer is great. I think he says uh, the Spirit's ministry is always meant to be a spotlight ministry. What's sort of hidden down here, shining the light on the Savior. So when I'm in church, um, the way, one of the ways, maybe not the only way, you know that, that um, you sense the Spirit is that Christ is exalted. Um, and I think the Spirit shines his light on the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus shows us who the Father is as he's exalted. And so we have this Trinitarian application of what's happening in the midst of worship. So if Christ is exalted in our sermons, if I could put it this way, the Spirit has done his work and he's happy about it. That's what he wants to do. I think what he doesn't want to do is have the focus on the spotlight because that's not why he's here. He's here to shine the light elsewhere, not on himself. Even as the Father sends the Son, so the Son will show us the Father. It's that sort of interaction in the economy of the Trinity. So I think, you know, you sense the Spirit when Christ is exalted. That's great. And so, John, as you're training students and you're talking about Word and Spirit in their ministry, how do you help them to appreciate the sense that I can only uh, share words, but the Holy Spirit has to make the fruit. Yeah. But I am, I'm, I'm the conduit somehow. Yeah. How does a student learn when he's preaching to realize the Holy Spirit is working in his preaching? And maybe in your own experience, is there a sense of saying, today the Holy Spirit chose to do something powerful I didn't fully appreciate, I, I, I could sense it. Yeah. You want to comment on that in any way? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I think it's something we actually have to be intentional about. As you frame the question of, you know, Thomas Goodwin, in his book on the Holy Spirit, opens it with a remarkable statement. He says, we've almost lost the third person of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we neglect the third person of the Trinity. And um, 
while he is, uh, I think this might be Packer's phrase as well, he is the shy spirit that he points to Christ. Uh, that doesn't mean he's not uh, the third member of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity that, that needs to be worshipped and adored. And so I do think that there has perhaps uh, been a, a reaction against um, revivalism, a reaction against some forms of theology, uh, against the sort of uh, trying to stir up by affectation the affections. There can be a reaction where we become perhaps overly cerebral and think that if we've simply followed the form, we've done our job. Um, I think that the mark of the Spirit's work in, the, in preparation and in preaching is, is power. And I think sometimes we do see uh, what we might perceive as a lack of power in some preaching. And that can simply be the deadness of our hearts, the dullness of our minds. Um, we believe because the Spirit works through the Word that when the Word of God is opened, the Spirit is at work. And we never want to take away from that. I think one of the marks, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, 24 to 25, uh, when Paul's addressing the prophetic word, the use of the prophetic word, which we would take now by analogy uh, in this post-apostolic age, we don't work with direct revelation, we work with deposited revelation in the scriptures. But the effect of that prophetic word being proclaimed was that even the unbelievers amongst you will sense that God is present and fall down and worship. And so I think that, that when the Holy Spirit is at work in preaching, the people, either by for comfort or conviction, should feel God's present. And one of the ways, that the central way, as Scott has, has rightly put it, is that Christ is exalted. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? He illumines us to Christ, and he transforms us into the image of Christ. So I think one of the marks for a preacher, whatever his personality, is, is the Spirit working through the Word in the, the way that we the Scripture calls us to expect the expectation of Spirit's work is, are people being illumined to Christ? And are they being transformed into the image of Christ through my preaching? I think that's a test. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about this in, in his book on, on preaching. And I think probably all of us around this table would, would uh, differ with how Lloyd-Jones formulates uh, his view of the baptism of the Spirit. But I think his, he was right on the phenomena. I think he was right on the, ex the, the experience of the unction of the Spirit in preaching. And uh, so I think, we, to your question, we need to be intentional. I think we need to be teaching preachers a biblical um, theology of the Holy Spirit. I think we need to uh, raise our expectations of what God does by His Spirit through the man of God as He stewards the Word of God. I think we need to, again, if I go back to him, Dr. Gaffin, who, gives, who gave us such great teaching on the Holy Spirit, particularly how that relates to gifts and revelation and, and Pentecost. I remember sitting in class and, and, and him giving us this powerful exposition of Ephesians 5.18 on the imperative to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think preachers need to take that to heart. We are baptized in the Spirit. We, the, the Spirit is within us. But there's still a call to be filled with the Spirit. And I think that can make a difference in a preacher's preaching. So I think intentionality within a sound biblical theology of the Holy Spirit and expecting God to do what he says he does in the scriptures. Okay. I, th I think another thing to, to mention, uh, the historical aspect of it, is, as these brothers have, have mentioned, you know, Martin Luther once remarked that the Christian life is the life of repentance. 
Um, and so when Christ is exalted, one of the things that you see, I think, or should expect to see in a healthy congregation and in a healthy pastor um, is a growth in repentance, a growth in reverence. And these are, these are two poles of the same thing. Um, that you cannot grow in your reverence for God. And what I mean by that is true awe, true worship, true joy, um, true responsiveness to the Word. Uh, it's striking to me that the emphasis in this, in this, argument, in this uh, article, is, in this chapter, is on uh, the, the heart. Yeah. And in, in the use of biblical language, God is concerned about hard hearts versus soft hearts. Mm. And so to see that the, the, the work of the Spirit among God's people historically has always been in a responsiveness to His Word. You know, whenever we seek to rule over the Word, that's that's not that's not whatever the affections may be, that's not an appropriate response. So that um, I think is a helpful point to say that the, the affections are effects, and the responsiveness to the the Word starts with a tender heart, mm. the conviction mm. of sin, mm. uh, growth and reverence. And out of that comes all of that those beautiful fruit, that beautiful fruit of the spirit, and the love, joy, peace, all these other things. So when you see those fruits as a pastor in your congregation, they're going to ebb and flow like the stock market. Um, some days you're going to feel like you're in a recession. Some days you're going to feel like you're in an inflationary cycle. Some days you may feel like these are boom times. Um, but I would be, I would caution anyone, and I think this uh, 18th century bears this out in the growth of the first great awakening, the second great awakening. I would caution anyone whenever you see affections divorced from submission and responsiveness to the word. It leads to crises in churches because yeah. then, then what's, what's put on the primacy is the exteriority right. of your internal feelings um, rather than in the true position before God. That's so I good. think history would, would caution us. Pa generations of pastors would caution us of, of if your congregation is not growing in their reverence and responsiveness to the Word, yeah. and it doesn't result in repentance, then we haven't done it right. Yeah, yeah very good. So we kind of bring our uh, discussion to a climax here. Two final thoughts I think I'd love to have your engagement with. So <clears throat> on the one hand, he emphasizes the importance of passion, that, the, that you just can't get up there and drone away, There's, that you're engaged with this. So what does godly passion and preaching look like, John? So I want you to address yeah. that. And then I'd like all three of you to address uh, his final point is, is that you need to see Christ in all of Scripture. Yeah. When, wherever you're preaching, yeah. Jesus needs to shine. Yeah. So tell us about passion, then I want all of you to tell you, how, how do we see Jesus in the Bible? Yeah, well, I, I, I really appreciate the language of passion and Kent highlighting that for us. Um, we could go back to the discussion on personality. Um, so just to illustrate, Kent's personality and my personality are very different. Um, he is the more seasoned, effective expositor. But in the pulpit, we're very different. But we're committed to the same things. Um, I've been wrestling with this language, and I think passion's appropriate. I think maybe a more, maybe a more biblical category is zeal mm. uh, and earnestness. Mm. And I think what you want, what preachers have to be engaged in, they have to be zealous for what they're saying. They have to be earnest. Kent calls it blood earnest. And um, I think that's what we're trying to get at with the language of passion. Sometimes when we use the language of passion, people can hear what Todd was concerned to guard against. Uh, it's all about this particular external manifestation. Um, Kent uses in, the, in the, the categories all these young guys that want to look like John Piper. You mm -hmm. know, But I think you have to preach within your personality. But within your person and your personality, you have to be earnest and zealous. 
I think that's often what people are talking about in passion. So you can't be detached. Um, I remember hearing G.I. Packer preach on Isaiah chapter 6. You know, Packer approached the text like an Oxford don. And oh, his hands behind his back and just commented on the text. But I remember when he was done preaching in Isaiah 6, nobody moved. I felt like I'd been nailed to the pew. And um, it, because of the, the earnest, zealous engagement with the God of the text through the text. So I think that might be a helpful category, is zeal. Okay, great. So how do we preach Christ and Scripture? I want each of you to answer that from your own individual experience, practice, discipline. We're going to end with you, John, and okay. then I have one final question for you. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, the how-to. Um, you come to Westminster, you learn that. Um, there are wooden ways to do it, that mm -hmm. is, ways that you sort of invent um, so that um, you have to see Jesus in every sentence and every word. That's not useful. But, um, you know, our, one of our favorite um, texts in, in Luke 24 is Jesus is, is giving these two disciples on the road to Emmaus a hermeneutics lesson. He's telling them the whole Old Testament is about him, and, and, and the reason he's there on the road walking as the resurrected Lord is because of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God previously. So, you know, I think... Um, I think this is one of the things that the Reformed um, view has um, particularly uh, emphasized in the right way, that the Bible's a unit, and, and it's, it's not just that we see just shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. We see Jesus in the Old Testament, and we need to recognize him there and, and see that, the, you know, I think Bobbing puts it this way, the whole of the Old Testament is a kind of incarnation leading to, proleptically, the, the, the one event in history when the time had fully come and, and the second person Trinity takes on human nature. And so we read, we read the Old Testament text that way so that, again, the Spirit is happy because Christ is exalted when we preach from 1 Samuel and from uh, other passages in the Old Testament that may not look initially when we read them, like they say something about Christ, but when we read them from the standpoint of what Christ has done and who he is, we begin to see that. And, and Jesus was very clear to, to the Jews um, and the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe him. Okay, tell us, tell us a difference then just briefly. Some people have talked about Christotelic hermeneutics and others Christocentric hermeneutics. What's the difference and why does it matter to understand the difference? Yeah, well, you know, some people have wanted to use, uh, I remember Greg Beale saying, I think Christotelic is fine. So again, it's the definition, isn't it? But if Christotelic means he's not there yet, and so when he does come, and this was kind of N.T. Wright's emphasis for a while, when he does come, it's a surprise to the Jews. That's not the way Jesus talked about it to the Jews. It's not, hey, guess what, guys? You never saw this coming. Instead, if you believe Moses, you believe me. So if Christotelic means the whole Old Testament is looking forward to the time when the time had fully come that, this, that the Son of God would take on a human nature, good and fine. But it's looking forward in the sense that it's giving us real substance in the Old Testament so that if you read it properly, you should have known that that's what was going to happen. If Christotelic means he's not there, uh, but there are these um, occasions or incidents where we might see glimpses, you know, and that's the way it's been understood in, in, in some quarters in biblical studies, and that's a wrong way to read the Old Testament, the Old Testament. Jesus didn't think of it that way. 
So he saw himself as the center of the whole Bible. Center of the whole Bible because what he's been sent by the Father to reveal who the Father is, and then the Spirit comes yeah. to tell us about Christ. Right. It's a it's a fully Trinitarian right. Christocentrism. Right. That's the way I think we would That's think right. about it. Right. Todd, what would you say about that question? If someone <laughs> says to you, how, how do we preach Christ in all the Bible? What would be your advice? What a wonderful question. Um, one of the things that has this this comment about the road to Emmaus, um, I think that is such a key part of our hermeneutic. Um, as I read the as I read the early modern and the Protestant Reformation and figures from that period, this statement, um, this passage out of out of Luke, um, is so formative for the doctrine of Scripture, and not only for the doctrine of Scripture, but who God says He is. Um, I'm thinking of Peter Martyr Vermigli treating this as their very same passage. That is his locus on Scripture. They had to derive it from his commentaries, and it's his preface on 1 Corinthians, where he talks about God has spoken. You know, Deus Dixit, God has said. Um, and he takes us through all of the attributes of Scripture and its inerrancy, its perspicuity, its clarity, all these other things, as, as preparatory for pastors to preach. He's writing a commentary on how do you handle 1 Corinthians. And he starts with the road to Emmaus and Deus Dixit, God has said. And so for him and others, many others, to go back through the text, um, you know, we have to look for that, that uh, the pointers ahead, but also the, the elements that um, are fulfilled in their context, but yet point to a greater thing. This was a great concern and difference, by the way, between the Reformed and the Lutherans. The Reformed would read through the Psalms and see Christ all over the place. Uh, the Lutherans, uh, what's interesting with Luther was he would read the text of the Psalms and see Christ all over the place and never mention David or never mention Solomon. And the Reformed, like Calvin and others, would look at it and say, there's proximate referent here, but this is pointing to a true David, a true Solomon. And so there's a wonderful point of preaching Christ of the Old Testament of um, you don't do it in a way where you exclude the context of the, of the Old Testament but you do it in a way that it points vividly to Christ. So, so how does Voss's idea of biblical theology relate to what you just said? Well, I would, I would say that it points to this idea that, uh, that you have a seed form that's going to come into full bloom in the New Testament. And that's been, a, that's been part of the Reformed approach to Scripture, and it goes deeper than that. You can find medieval antecedents and patristic antecedents in seeing the Scriptures this way. And so what I see is, is that this is a biblical aspect. Um, of, 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 of so full it would be fair to say the DNA of Jesus has been in all the Bible. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. That's great. Mm. You know, Pete, and that, if I could just say one thing, uh, since we were talking about affections, um, when I was uh, first a Christian, I had an older man disciple me, and one of the things he said was, you need to read a one book a year on the personal work of Christ. So he recommended Warfield, so I got that. And I was a new Christian. I didn't know what theology was or what reform meant. But in that um, book is a chapter called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've said to people, as a relatively new Christian, I couldn't understand the Greek or any of that at that point, but I read that thing and I was undone for a few days. It just absolutely, um, I was spellbound by this emphasis on the fact that the Lord Jesus actually had real compassion. I mean, the affections of the Lord with regard to his humanity are sometimes, I think we miss those sometimes in our 
thinking about who Christ is and, and maybe even in our preaching. But I would just re recommend that to, to any Christian and any, any pastor. That so is just a marvelous So what you're show. saying is you need to see Christ truly in the Gospels. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah. 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 See him for who he is, the God-man. Yeah. That's wonderful. Okay, Pastor Curry, tell us the same question. How do we see Jesus in all Scripture? How do you teach students to do that? Well, I'm grateful to be able to be teaching preaching at a seminary uh, where they learn that not just in their preaching class, but in their biblical studies classes and in their hermeneutics classes and in their historical theology classes and in their uh, systematics classes. I learned after several years of pastoral ministry to preach Christ from the scriptures by sitting in my theology class with Dr. Gaffin and how he would take text after text after text and show us Christ from all of scripture. So I actually think the way you learn to preach Christ from all of Scripture is to be a theologian and to uh, study the text with a redemptive, historical, Christ-centered hermeneutic that points us and reveals... What does redemptive, historical mean? Well, that we understand that the Bible is, is the unfolding uh, of redemptive history and that there's an, as you cited Voss, that there is an organic progression to the revelation throughout history that God gives to us. And I think understanding, the as, uh, as Dr. Gaffin gives us in his book, The Fullness of Time, that the, um, the architecture of Scripture. So I actually think to learn, I don't think you learn to be a Christ-centered preacher by just saying, I'm going to adopt Christ-centered preaching. I think you have to study the Scriptures uh, uh, in a biblical theological manner and view to the whole counsel of God, fully informed by systematics and historical theology. So you really have to be a, a theologian that's preaching. And, and, and interpret that according to the hermeneutics that, that Scott and Todd just pointed out to us. I think the other thing I want to say is, um, aside from the hermeneutics issues, uh, we preach Christ from the scriptures. Now, Sinclair's pointed this out for us. Uh, systematic theology didn't die on the cross for me. Biblical theology didn't die on the cross for me. And sometimes what guys fall into is, what they're actually doing is preaching the hermeneutics about Christ. You need to preach Christ from the text, through the right hermeneutic. So it's about proclaiming Christ, who He is, what He has done, what He will do, and continues to do in us. Um, and I think in order to do that, if I could use somebody else's phrase, Scott alluded to it, you have to be besotted with Christ. It's not, okay, here's a hermeneutical theological principle. Here's the person revealed to us in the scriptures. I believe Him. I follow Him. I love him, and I want you to know him. I think that's at the heart of Christ-centered preaching. Mm, that's great. Well, as we uh, conclude our engagement with uh, Kent Hughes' wonderful focus on the pastor's heart in the pulpit, you are inviting students to come and study with you yeah. to become pastors, yeah. to fill pulpits, yeah. and to have their hearts shaped. Why should they come and study with Dr. Curry and his colleagues? Well, uh, I put the emphasis on the colleagues. Uh, I think Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, in a, a very particular way, uh, gives us what we just talked about, um, the exegetical, uh, theological, historical foundations to be prepared to preach Christ, not just for the next uh, two years, but for the next 40 years, and to be able to engage uh, all of the issues that are going to come at you culturally because they're changed and they change fast. Um, I'm reminded as Todd was speaking uh, about uh, exegesis and exposition, you know, John Murray mm. 
in his um, uh, introduction to his commentary in Romans in the two-volume set. In the second volume in the introduction, he apologizes uh, for the, t- the publication taking so long. And, he, and the way he puts it, this was our systematician. He said, uh, it's taken this long because exposition is an arduous task. <laughs> and it should be because it's the Word of God. So, you know, that commentary, which, by the way, we're releasing again through That's Westminster exciting. Seminary Press, yeah. um, a special edition. Um, I think that is why preachers should come and study at Westminster, because we're not just going to teach you how to preach. We're going to teach you how to study the text, see Christ in the text, love Christ from the text, and then we'll teach you how to preach Christ in the text. That's great. So what do you say to people? Don't go to Westminster. You won't learn how to preach. They're a bunch of theological eggheads. Yeah. They don't care about pastors. Yeah. What do you say to that, Pastor Curry? Well, um, I think we believe that um, what comes from the pulpit and hits the pew is the tip of the spear. And uh, we want to equip you with rich, rigorous, biblical, systematic, historical theology so that you can be uh, the pastor who is equipped, again, uh, to deal with all of the pastoral problems that, you, that you're going to face. Um, I think it's, if I could say it this way, it's a caricature. And uh, I know what you're committed to. I know what we're committed to. We are committed to training God-glorifying, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, mission-leading heralds of the Word of God. And I, I think that, that you get trained uh, for that at Westminster Seminary. So what is this Pastoral Fellows Program all about? Well, the Pastoral Fellows Program is about equipping those men, uh, men of God, who are uh, trained in the character, the convictions, and the competencies that are necessary for pastoral ministry. And uh, we're inviting men who sense the call, who are sent by their church, to come to uh, three years on campus of rigorous training and then be placed for one year in a pastoral residency uh, to get a deep and lasting uh, pastoral training uh, for guys who, when they hear uh, about preaching the Word of God, um, they rise to the call. That's the Pastoral Fellows Program at Westminster Seminary. Well, all I can tell you is having uh, had this conversation, I think Westminster really cares about the pastor engaging the modern world. That's pretty exciting. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.